0: Welcome to Deck Podcast, episode 17. Um, we're here with... Uh, we've, we're back after... Uh, I think we established that it's about... a year and a half or so. A year so. and a yeah. half. More than um, that, maybe. So it's been a while. However, um, we've spent an hour and a half. We've been a bit rusty setting up today. Um, we are here in Kevin's new little house um, out in Whitecourt, Alberta. Um we have a special guest here, Me Shax Behringer, joins us as our audio engineer in training. Hello. And of course me, Joel Adria, Kevin Lau. Um so yeah. Uh we're back at it. We've got our Mackie mixer set up in the living room here. It took a lot of time to somehow couple. Right now we're using the biggest Grundig radio ever just to give me a <laughs> monitor mix. But I think that's pretty hilarious. Yeah, we're, um, I'm,
1: I'm a bit rusty with the whole setup thing, and uh, Joel disapproves of my gain structure, but it should be better well, than episode three, or the last episode, episode that I zero? accidentally recorded on my uh, laptop's built-in microphone. Was so. it the
0: last episode, or did we not publish that one? We
1: never published that one, oh, I, okay. or I think we did. We just put in a big disclaimer that it was really
0: awful. Oh, so. Okay. So yeah. there you go. We're now used live.
1: I, I, and we're using. I Adon really hope. I record. really hope you're actually recording.
2: It's recording. It looks like it's recording. I, I can see it. It's recording. But I mean, who really knows? I know. I'm telling you, it's recording. Um,
0: so on the topic
2: of schedules today, and by that, by which
0: I mean, on the schedule of topics today, um, iPhone five. Picked up an iPhone five a couple of days ago. Um, yeah. So, uh, decided it was time to upgrade, Aaron dropped her 3gs for about the seventh time and you know smashed up the screen so i felt it was the time so she got the old iphone 4 and now is ios 6 and all the other goodies that goes along with it and i've got the iphone 5 very uh very good experience going to the apple store met, met a new friend named chris and uh yeah it was basically a pretty painless process um, big new features, mostly on the iPhone. There's really not that much on the iPhone 5 in general. Uh, it's got the LTE, which Kevin will insist is not a real thing, um, not a real technology. Uh, well,
1: it's it, it, it's a concept for technology. It's not a technology in itself. So, so you cannot say, I have bad LTE reception
0: on my phone. Which I like to say. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Well, I, I like to see LTE as being... Um, a concept of building your network, building your network using packet switched instead of a combination packet switch circuit switch network right, and so I see it as a concept and, and a combination of multiple technologies to accomplish this concept, but you cannot say i 'm not receiving LTE on my phone right now that 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 doesn 't work
0: so what is actually happening when my little LTE icon appears on my phone? What does that actually mean then
1: It means that well here 's the thing that there 's no like implementation of what is long-term evolution it's uh, it's um, like today like here's the thing though it's not like tomorrow there'll be LTE version 2.0 or something like that oh yeah it's no, a, I realize it, it's, it's a concept of basically building your network in a full switch or packet switch architecture and saying okay I've got this much bandwidth and if the, these many people are making phone calls then sure all what's what's left is good for data
0: right but something's giving us a better speed over what we had before
1: so oh, that's what true. what yeah. is the difference it's oh, I, I see it as as better bandwidth management because in a lot of places you know the build out of the backhaul hasn't you know increased just to handle this now in a lot of places in metro areas particularly that is the case you know where where we we increase the back end bandwidth so that we can you know carry all these new uh, and offer high bandwidth services to end users right but uh and it doesn't have to be it doesn't require an increase in back in bandwidth it's more you know an increase of uh a better usage of existing bandwidth instead of allocating, you know, this much for voice calls and what's left is for data. This is a system that says, okay, how many people are using which service at a, t- at a time? It's it's just quality of service as opposed to, you know, more traditional, uh, you know, every, every call is, is how many kilobits, 8K per second, G.729 G. codec or whatever,
0: right? So. so what's actually giving us double the speed then?
1: It could be channel bonding on, on HSPA. That's, that's one thing I was talking to Joel earlier uh, yesterday about uh, is, is one thing that offers the so-called 4G service is that, uh, is that we're taking the existing network and, and adding additional channels to it so that uh, devices that do support channel bonding can take advantage of that, but you still have backwards compatibility with uh, non-channel bonding capable devices.
0: Hmm. Okay, so then, so then, when your when your device is switching between LTE, it's just it it's making the bond and then it can't achieve the bond, sort of thing.
1: Yeah. So this this is this is actually dependent on uh, on available spectrum, obviously, right? So if there's if a carrier is able to run multiple bands and the device also supports that, then it can say, hey, also look here, and then you know if the device and the base can agree on this the ebts can agree on this then then they'll say okay well your downstream bandwidth will be you know data will be coming on both this band and that band simultaneously listen for both at the same time whereas on other devices it's like okay on 850 megahertz that's all your downstream it's 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 all
0: there right so because i was noticing right off the bat that lte wasn't showing up on my phone uh, like very often, like it wouldn't always necessarily register. So, so really, in fact, being able to roll this out reliably as a telecom provider is actually kind of tricky because, you know, it's not like the signal is there or isn't there, right? I mean, when we transitioned from when Telus installed, you know, a nationwide HSPA network, it was either you get the signal or you don't, right? I mean, that that was that was the transition because they were transitioning from CDMA, EVDO system, mm-hmm. you know, and so and you it, either... it's not really a transition. It's more of a, of a parallel add-on. Parallel, right. It, it's right? A, so. a, they were adding a network. Whereas here, uh, you know, it's pretty hard to, you know, it's very dependent on the device and the environment about whether you'll actually be able to make a good connection. It's almost like, you know, on Wi-Fi when it's saying, you know, oh, well, we're at 54 megabits per second right now or we're bumping you up to 300 or downgrading you to 11. You know, it's it's almost in that sense, right? You know, that you might get... 300 megabits to your router, but based see, on see, conditions,
1: 802.11n is is is, is the best uh, comparison to this because 802.11n uses channel bonding as well. Right. So you can either use use channel bonding on the same radio frequency band, or you can channel bond across different frequency bands. Right. So so um, when we say a router can handle 300 megabits per second link speed, that's really two 150 channels bonded together right. a 150 mega a one 150 megabit link speed channel is 20 megahertz wide if you take two 20 megahertz wide channels to gain a 40 megahertz wide channel that's where you get the you know the the supposed 300 megabit per second link right. speed now right. good put is, is 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 different depending on a lot of things right but 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 having two bonded 20 megahertz channels means that more legacy devices or the the original end devices that don't do 40 meg wide channels can still communicate communicate on the 20 megahertz channel. As opposed to just having just a completely wide 40 megahertz channel that, you know, only devices that can support it can talk on, and and that's how you want to build your network you know if you want to do it that way you can force it so that you only have 40 meg wide devices that connect to it right but uh most in in most applications you want a certain level of backward compatibility right and in a in a, in a cellular network that is definitely what you do want because you know yes the you know for for carriers to transition from from a cdma style network to to a hspa network that's that's a change that's going to be a change yeah. and there, there's no there's no backwards and, compatibility and yeah, right yeah. that's why it has to be implemented in parallel because you can't just pull out cdma under the rug from everyone right mm-hmm. so um okay so new network here we go um but now moving forward with a new network you're not going to build like a fifth network on top of that you know and right. uh, and just say here everyone buy this in place of it right from a back-end infrastructure standpoint that does not make sense right because uh because you know the investment for a network build out is a high dollar thing and, and and you know at the beginning you have to spend the money to build out the network right and then hopefully you can collect it later on right so mm-hmm. and uh, you know for most of the carriers they want to get to the, the state that uh iden services are where the network is built out right. and um uh, and uh, it doesn't break you know like the, the equipment keeps working and uh, people are paying for the service that's that's the that's the happy point in your network build-out, right? So,
2: so when did Edmonton get LTE? It wasn't supposed to be sometime at the end of next year, or that, that's what I heard anyway.
0: Yeah, well, it, you, you know, it's, no. TELUS is
2: TELUS has LTE. Yeah, but yeah. when did it happen? When, when did it? Uh, it was get earlier
0: it? this year, I think. Earlier.
2: Yeah, well, I I'm looking they made it up Fast, right now, and they promised. That's mm-hmm. good. Well,
1: see, like rollout is a as a site by site basis, mm-hmm. right? So like, Calgary
2: had it for a while, though, didn't it?
0: Yeah, like they're saying in the latest news, you know, launches in Lloydminster, launches in St. Catharines. I was looking at the coverage map, and it's actually it's pretty good. Major cities are pretty much covered. So,
2: Kevin, what Canada. does it take to in, you know, install get LTE in a new city? More towers? More space stations that can support these it's, networks? It's not so, uh,
1: always a hardware thing. It's also uh, a regulatory thing, mm-hmm. right? You have to be able, you have to be authorized to use... Uh, wider frequency bands or additional frequency bands, right, so in certain areas and like white is one of them, most of the cellular slash all of the cellular is on the eight fifty megahertz band thousand nine hundred is is not used much at all and uh, and it 's mainly because here we have a lot of macro cells where where a cell Covers a large geographical area, as opposed to a more urban area where, where you have more microcells and femtocells and pico cells, and you know get smaller and smaller. Like so we that, may right? never so.
0: see really a lot of these higher speed LTE in the rural areas. It won't ever. be. It won't be right away. Hmm.
1: It will. You know, there there's definitely a, a, a demand for it. The only thing is that uh, is where do you start off? You know, because the the uh, the end users here are are everywhere, and we're in kind of the middle of nowhere type places, right? So you can't just focus, uh, a, you know, a microcell or femtocell network in a specific location as you can with, uh, say, a sporting arena, for example, you know, uh, for for TELUS anyway, like uh, Rexall Place is one of the, one of the bigger... Uh, Rexall Place and Commonwealth are one of the you know bigger sites for them to focus on to say, okay, I mean, large amounts of people gather in this area. Those amounts of people, some a certain percentage of those are, are customers, or users, and at those events, people are using their uh, communication devices, you know, phones or computers or whatever, right? Or tablet PCs with cellular modems built in to... <laughs> the hockey game on your tablet. That, you know, I can just... Well, I mean... That, that, I, it that, happens. Used, that I used to mean, be funny, but the, now it's, it's happening. It's so, happening. People are everywhere. Yeah, with it. Yeah. Them. So so people are sharing images and or live streaming, like, from their seat, you know? So, exactly. So high bandwidth usage, right? But in this case, you have, uh, you know, you know where people are going to be and you can focus on delivering you know delivering a network with a cap- capacity to handle an event because it's not all the time it's not 24/7 that you know people are are using it are using the the bandwidth at that lo- certain location all the time it's just during scheduled events where people get together right
0: so so do you so- think it's typical for them to you know during Capital X or the week of Capital X that they'll Dial down the power on some of their towers and then throw in extra towers. Is that generally how they do it and, and that 's been done for, for for a while not not, not
1: only on this, on the current uh, cellular technologies but even in the past that uh, we 've always had uh, like cell, cell on wheel type uh, right. devices and it 's not just one carrier it 's it's, it's an industry accepted standard to just bring in additional capacity right, right. because um, at a certain point, yes, it will still work, but it will not work satisfactorily. You know, f- to keep people happy right, right. so so that 's where you, you, you it's it's uh, it 's where you 're trying to introduce more back end bandwidth right but um for those events, you can estimate it you know they 're scheduled you know that's it 's happening right whereas you know out in out in the country here, yes, people are using mobile devices because there 's nothing else you know yeah. um, I set up many sites that have fixed cellular modems because there is no other option to get data out here, and right now that's actually the best option i can get five megabit uh, data in a place that doesn't even have copper phone lines right so so that's where you have users like that like fixed clients always connected right as well as the roaming clients you know uh, people driving by on the highway you know um, and how do you focus on 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 who you want to serve right because your customers are everywhere they're geographically spread apart and they expect it to be ubiquitous and that's that 's the customer expectation right yep. so and and you know here it 's not as much of an of an expectation there's a, people are more realistic about you know having cell service and and that 's why you know in, in these types of areas like cell booster hardware those fly off the shelves you know you're you know in the city you look at it, you look at it in the, in the store and you're like oh hey it's a cell booster oh i wonder where, who uses that you know three watt output for my phone uh, why do i need why do i need that but you know and in certain areas here you people you know most people do have them and uh and and you know it's a popular product because they they understand that in this location The cell coverage isn't isn't good, but it's not the cell cell phone company's problem. Whereas, you know, in more urban areas, users in the urban areas are going to walk into an elevator and say, oh, I dropped a call. It's the cell provider's problem because I couldn't hold a call on an elevator, which is a big metal (laughs) box. Yeah. You know, those that's are the, that's, that's a classic that's, Rogers that's commercial. Exactly. You know, but but I've seen it in person too, right? Where someone walks in and then they drop their call and they get like really pissed off because.
0: Well, it happens. Or all, on the train, or whatever. You know,
1: right? all, all the above, right? And and the only thing is, you know, the, for the for the urban user is what I've what I've observed is that they blame it on the on the on the. Telecommunications providers saying, "Oh, you didn't build out your network properly enough because I'm sitting on this
0: train and I just lost it when we went through this right. tunnel." Right, but or I whatever, mean, in you know? in some senses as well, though. I mean, if you look at it, it's like, well, you know, how many people are experiencing that same problem? I mean, I exactly. can't even yeah. like I can 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 even count how many times I've been on the train and we go under you know a couple of tunnels there on the south side of Edmonton, you know, and people are like, "What the heck?" You know, "Oh my call," you know, I have to dial back. You know, it's something that's happening to. Hundreds of people, you know, a month it's something that they could address, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas it's yeah. like, you know, if there's a problem with, you know, getting from the White Court Mountain down to somebody's house, that's one person. Exactly. So, it, know, it depends so. on how many customers you're right. actually serving,
1: because there's a cost involved to building out this network. Whereas here, it's kind of like, okay, the customer purchases the equipment to, you know, put an external antenna on their house, and then rebroadcast it through the, the cell booster inside their house and all that, right? So, yeah. so you know, it's just, uh, you know, we're kind of like, okay, it's fine. The, the telco won't you know show up and install a booster for me in my house and you know do it for free so i'll do it myself kind of thing so you know it's and from a telco perspective you cannot focus on any one customer because they're geographically separated and uh you know you you, you try your best and and it's 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 not bad
0: yep Um, so that's the LTE. A bit of a discussion about that. Um, I mean,
1: yeah, LTE could go on forever because it, it's a concept of how you build your a network. Concept, it's yeah. not. It's not a service. LTE is not a service. I, and I, I stressed out it because it's not like oh, it's I, a lot I, of marketing you know, lingo. And uh, yeah, I, I guess like, you know if I went to explain this in, in marketing, you'd lose half your customers just by like, what does this mean? You know. Yeah. Of but course. if you kind of advertise LTE as a as a service or a protocol Something or that's whatever, better
0: and faster. You know, and- then
1: they can say, oh, I, I oh I've got LTE uh, coverage reception on my phone or whatever, and that's what the average user is going to say. You know. Yeah. But from a for someone who's uh, you know I work with the end, I don't I don't do a lot of cellular network build out, but I am. Uh, an end user of 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 this
0: you know and so is so is everyone else right and it's it just bugs me (laughs) (laughs) yeah so uh other new things on the iphone 5 um of course the big news this week was that google maps is now back on ios um a couple of months ago apple decided they were going to do their own maps came out with the uh, apple maps they sucked um a couple of interesting stories there's a There's an area down in, uh, near Victoria, Australia, where, um, people were constantly driving into the bush because there was a complete misrepresentation of where, I guess, okay, I I read more details into this. I guess the name or the area of the county, um, the center of the county is where it was identifying the city, which is by the same name of this county, uh, was. And so people were driving straight into the bush out of cell phone reach, um, Forty-six degrees above Celsius down there in Australia, and getting stranded in their cars, and then realizing that Apple Maps had led them in to a city that was not a city. So that was sort of interesting, and uh, they, you know, they got on that right as soon as the police started reporting that you know this was a major problem. Um, but then later this week, uh, Google Maps, great new, uh, great new app for for iOS six and five. Um, to let you use Google Maps again on your iPhone, and it's really great. It's actually a lot better um, than the original one. It's got turn-by-turn directions, that sort of thing. Misha, have you been able to play around with that?
2: Um, well, I did some searches just for fun. The um, first one came to mind was actually Cookies by George, and Apple Maps showed me only one location in Edmonton, Well, the Google Maps app shows me four. In yeah, places I certainly
0: noticed that right away is, is you know, to be able to go back uh, and use, I mean, we've always had the Google Maps web app, to, you know, if you really need to, but it's certainly not as, as efficient or effective. The iPad version, still not available, That
2: although it is apparently coming, so you can use uh, Google Maps on full iPad. And I'm glad that Tim Center can finally be found on Google Maps, because Apple Maps, it's not on Apple Maps, so it's... When I get a ride there from my parents and they don't know where it is, Yeah, that's another big bonus sometimes. is
0: Google has got a humongous inventory of 3D buildings and 3D structures that is absolutely incomparable to those from Apple. So
2: Even Apple's flyover mode only works in a few cities, like I'm looking at it right now, and it's just not comparable yeah, to Google's 3 mode. Yeah, only if you mode. select American cities. So it's pretty exciting that Google,
0: Google Maps is back. Um, and, of course, the iPhone 5, it's got the lightning connector I was uh on, on the internet last night. I, I had sort of read um before I picked it up uh, you know, that there was some uh some cracking of the connector going on. I guess it has some active circuitry inside the lightning connector that sort of negotiates all these digital signals into the eight pins. Uh so I
1: looked at this and it's actually a double sided connector. You it is double sided whichever yes, way you that's you want.
0: one of the big reasons. Um so it's quite intelligent, anyways. But the, and so Apple has been protecting it. However, you know the very resourceful Chinese have uh, reverse engineered it and are already you know cranking them out at factories near you. Um, and so yeah, I went ahead and ordered some some adapters and charger cables from DealExtreme.com, and it worked out to about twenty six bucks for two two Lightning USB cables, an
2: adapter for thirty pin. And I think something else. Well, if Apple didn't charge a ridiculous amount of price for all its cables, this will, wouldn't have to be the case. Yeah, like how much is one lightning cable from Apple? Let's check. Like, do you know how much a lightning
0: cable is? Twenty bucks. 20 a bucks.
2: lightning adapter to thirty pin, which
0: is like a big block. Like yeah. it's not cabled. Is thirty nine, and yes. I think the one with the nice little like two inch cable in between is like forty nine. Now,
1: do you get still get your line level audio 39.
0: output? Do you still get your line level audio output um, from that
1: uh, lightning to thirty pin dock connector? Because you know a lot of audio, yes. uh, you know, accessories they
0: use that line output pin. Oh, absolutely, no. If if it's a, if it's an adapter to thirty pin, it should absolutely be you know a remapping of the thirty pin. Mm-hmm. But there is no
1: more like on the on on the lightning eight pin connector. Itself. there's no more analog output
0: it's- well if you ask apple they say it's a digital only connector okay so presumably any adapter dock etc it would have its own will have a d to a yeah dock in there, you know right. like a, a digital to audio converter analog converter so uh Yeah, I don't know. I mean, there hasn't been a lot of talk. I mean, there's been some products from Belkin and stuff that, you know, cables and... And I think this will show up in
1: due time, maybe. It's very
0: reminiscent of Thunderbolt, though. You know, sort of like, you know, a small commitment from a few people, not that big. But it's a a huge thing. And I'm not... I don't even have that many, you know, docks and all that. But I do, you know, I realized I, you know, having one cable that they give you... It's not enough for me. I need chargers everywhere just in case something happens, you know, like I need one in my backpack. One by my bed, you know, one just floating around. Like, it's good to have that. Do so they make
1: stuff. an authorized car charger accessory, or would you just
0: buy a USB cable for it? And I would just buy the USB cables, but choice. Belkin does have a car charger.
2: Well, cable. another thing I read about the new Lightning is that you can use more accessories with it. Like, you can have mini USB adapter to Lightning. Oh, the micro USB. Yeah,
0: they do sell that in Europe, I think. It's, but it's still an adapter, it's right? It's 21 bucks in Apple. Yeah, website. it's ridiculous, so... Uh, they did sell that on Deal Extreme as well. But, anyways, I was pretty happy about it. We'll see how they turn out. But the, a lot of the photo, the reviews and photos and videos. Okay, here we go. Pretty, Lightning to 30 positive.
2: pin adapter, 0.2 meters, $45. Wow, lightning to USB cable.
0: Yeah, so, so we, we all know dollars. where Apple's going with that one, but anyways,
2: This um, is nothing
1: new though. I mean, if you look at uh, like Motorola has been using authentication in their chargers for for quite some time where yes, even if you have the correct voltage on the correct pins going into the device, it'll, it'll say, oh, this is not an authorized product and then shut it off.
0: You yeah, know, I mean there's all sorts new. of <laughs> sorts of arguments for it. I mean, what's interesting is in the UK uh, or the EU has mandated that any device needs to be able to be chargeable via micro-USB. And so the way Apple has gotten around by that is that they do sell um, Lightning to micro-USB adapter. I don't know if they give it to you for free in the EU or Wait, what? Uh,
2: How do they work with the I- other iPhones, the 4, 4S, 3G,
0: the 3 adapter? How does that know. work? I don't know. But that has been the huh. law for quite some time. So I don't know... You know, they're Apple, so I don't know. I'm not entirely sure how that's a law. I, I, that just to protect because the, the people either. is so strange. Well, but, I mean, that's iPhone. why you see so many, like, you know, most Android devices, most of them do support micro-USB. Well,
2: on the back it's of the of iPhone, you do you see charging, the so. your European label of approval, so. Who knows? It's very
0: confusing, but uh, I thought that was kind of weird. That's weird. Um, other, other news? I
1: guess the other advantage is that you can actually hook up... Uh, uh, display devices to your phone now? Or have you always been able to do that through a d
0: pin dot It's been HDMI,
1: VGA. Okay, cool. So I would assume it's a, it's a serial.
2: It's, it's not USB serial. It's a...
0: a proprietary serial connection. Okay. Yeah.
2: Well, Joel, you had Siri before in your iPad, but you now have it on your iPhone. Yeah, I do. Yeah, so uh,
0: that's pretty handy. I, uh, I've i been using it a little more. Um, I mean, it's still kind of like... Sometimes you ask it things, it's like no, that's yeah. Would you use it way. more
1: as as a novelty item or is it still like, oh, I would use this like as the only method of, you know,
0: you know what? It is handy because a lot of times what's great is it integrates with omnifocus. So omnifocus is my uh preferred method of tracking to do's. And so I can and it's got this great thing where it'll yank things from the reminders app without even doing anything. So all I have to say is, Siri, remind me to, you know, pick up milk, and it'll actually record it into an external app. So that's kind of cool. And, uh, you know, but making an appointment and that sort of thing, it's nice when I'm on the go because, you know, fiddling with the date and time, it's, you know, it's a pain. It's like, you know, it's not something you want to do while you're walking. Whereas, you know, if you're just, you know, getting on the bus, oh, yeah, Race put ear to phone, Siri,
2: remind me to do this. I think it's it's pretty neat, and it works pretty well. So mm. I think that's pretty cool. You want to try a few searches now? See how well it does? Or Ask Siri. Uh, okay, well, know. let's try making an event. The Apple TV event. Okay, let's, okay see. let's try I tried doing this earlier. Siri, remind me to get the Apple TV tomorrow for $70 at Staples. Well, there we go. Well... Here's your reminder for tomorrow at 9 a.m. Well, it did that correctly. Create yes, create it.
0: Well, it did correctly. Earlier we were asking it um, because we were very confused. Apparently AMD, the processor company, no longer refers to their CPUs as CPUs, but calls them APUs, which stands for Accelerated Processing Units, which I guess just means that they put... Oh, it's Accelerated Parallel Processing. It's an app. (laughs) So let's ask Siri. Siri, what is an APU? (laughs)
2: me
0: think about that come on siri it's faster i than- found this oh it's saying it's an airport in brazil <laughs> still so there you go anyways i guess it doesn't it's not familiar with the amd jargon um but i think siri you know it has this place uh i think you know steady improvements
2: Are really we like how you can launch apps with siri i use that quite a bit um, launch Flashlight, launch Skype. It's yeah, I might it's do that. nice. You know, a, part of it is you just need to get used to it. I've had
0: it on my iPad, but a lot of times it's not – I'm not using my iPad quickly. You know, like I'm not like hopping on the train or something like this. Uh, so it doesn't really – it never really made sense. Whereas this, you know, if you just want to get things written down or, or done – quickly. I think it makes sense on the iPhone.
2: The other problem I actually sometimes had was uh, when you attach headphones, you can hold the um, mute or pause or whatever button on your Apple headphones and stereo turn on, but that turns on the screen. And if I'm walking, the iPhone's in my pocket or whatever. It might, like my leg hits the screen and it keeps on turning it off and on again. Oh, really? So that was hilarious. Well, that's what that whole, because
0: um, they did say it. They've, they've got like a Siri for, or eyes free system. For like in your car, so that you can talk to Siri without looking at your iPhone,
2: it'll stay dark,
0: which I think is pretty interesting.
2: And some cars are putting a special Siri button on your on the wheel. <laughs> Kevin loves that; I can just tell.
0: <laughs> but uh, he's not listening. Um. So, Kevin, tell us about your new place. Kevin has moved to White Court. He's been here for about six or seven months now. Yeah, and um, so. You know, he moved in uh, to an apartment. Now he's got his own place here. Uh, he's got a job working for Pembina. And uh, today was our first visit out here since we helped since him move, move yeah, in yeah, uh, September. Yeah. And uh, so we've been playing with all his new toys that c- come along with his little acreage. And uh, so why don't you tell us a little bit more about your, your job and what you do at Pembina?
1: Well, it's, uh, you know, I like to think about it as uh, I'm doing the same stuff uh, in a different place here. So, um um, you know, I'm still working with. Uh, I guess uh, telecommunications is a really wide field, and if you tell people, it's still like, "What? What exactly is that that you do?" Right? But, uh, but uh, in more in this uh, in this environment, it's more of a of a control, remote control of of devices and data acquisition kind of thing, which is you know very similar to you know, business lands, corporate networks, but, uh, more of a, a lower bandwidth and high availability kind of, uh, application. So it's, it's, it's gotta work, but it doesn't have to be really fast because data payload is, 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 is very small. So, um, all of, all of those things, and of course, you know, still supporting, you know, office, office needs for their computers, uh, Telephones and uh you know conference rooms and and all that stuff, so so it's it's nice to have a bit of variety it's not just you know always working out in the field and it's not just always working in an office at your desk it's uh It's a nice mixture of all of the above and also being able to you know have your say in the in you know the network build out and you know which way should we be moving and in uh, these days, it is everyone saying i p this i p that you know and uh, and uh. <laughs> i p this <laughs> i p that yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, trying to move the the IP network, which is currently you know at the, at the at the server end, trying to move that further and further out into the field. So perhaps one day we'll be plugging in our uh, PLC type of equipment directly into you know an IP radio, give it an IP address, and there it is. It's it's all transparent all the way back right
0: now. So 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 as you may recall about seven years ago it probably is now uh we used to do both you and i were both sort of exposed to uh, a computing science project um that was at the u of a that involved mesh networking Mm -hmm. Um, do you ever foresee that being part of how you use you know scada which is sort of data collection on the pipeline here in alberta uh do you ever see mesh networking as being a viable option um when the devices are
1: smart enough eventually to be able to um you know talk to each other and pass on messages perhaps the only concern is that mesh networking may pose you know, multiple points of failure instead of a single point of failure. And this is something you, you, you have a concern about when you do troubleshooting is, is because, oh, well, if, if there's one signal path back, then I'll troubleshoot along that signal path with the mesh network. You know, you know, in theory, if everything works fine. Everything talks to each other. It figures itself out and, and all that. In the case that it does not do that, you
0: Cause uh, from a you from know. a field standpoint, it actually, yeah, it's almost like a nightmare because, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, in the in the tree architecture that you're working with, it's, you know, well, I can I can trace myself up the line. Is this tower working? Is this tower working? Mm-hmm. You know, whereas in mesh networking, yeah, I mean, how would you? How would you trace? There the is no back, default, you know, you know uplink. D- okay, kind of okay, okay.
2: Well, yeah. hold on. What what exactly is mesh? Networking? Okay, good, good networking.
0: <laughs> so at the university, uh, you know, they were they were a lot of it was it was sensor based, um, but really mesh networking just means that. You know, uh, any device can talk to any device, so there's no sort of single um, master-slave relationship. You know, you know like yeah, so client-server relationship or tower that controls something. You know, it would be like if you threw a bunch of iPhones onto the floor and say, "Okay, your iPhones are now a network, and you guys can talk to each other." And a couple of you may have connections to the internet via some method. Um, and the ones in the middle, you know, will just sort of figure out a good way to talk to each other through the other iPhones that do have internet connections, and get the data through. Mm-hmm. And so it's and in, in, in it has a lot to do with the intelligence of the devices and that sort of thing. But you know, there's no run single. You know, how do you know if, for example, you're connect, you have no connections. <laughs> you know, it's it's very difficult to de- to determine. And and you'd sort of say, well, where should I put my connection? It's not a really planned. And that's really, in some way, it's sort of like a, a planless network in some way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's sort of a throw your network up in the air and see where it mm-hmm. lands, <laughs> So <laughs> right? yeah. what do you use it for anyway? Well, like in, uh, in the computing science examples, um, they would have uh, – one One was with the, a condo project or a senior condo project where you'd have a bunch of different sensors throughout the home. Uh, you know, this is almost pre-Wi-Fi is sort of what they were discussing. But, you know, let's say you've got – you know, a sensor on the floor and a sensor on a person, and they would just sort of talk to each other and make their way back to a central control. Mm-hmm. Or and,
1: and where mesh networking really shines is, is in a, an environment where you have uh, mobile nodes or a combination of fixed and mobile nodes. Right? right. That way, you don't you you cannot plan out a network because you don't you no, you do not necessarily know where the mobile node is going to be at a certain point in time. Therefore, you put logic into the uh, the the node devices to say, okay, just. You know, get the message back however you need, you need to take it, you know.
0: And it actually, and what's interesting about mesh networking is it does address some of the issues we were talking about earlier today um, about the challenges of LTE, you know, and running 1900 megahertz in the mountains, for example. Um, you know, it's not going to go very far. But if you can have an iPhone that, you know, will be, act as a relay to a tower somewhere else, then it means that somebody over, you know, in another city can connect with a city in between sort of thing without having to have a real connection. And it can be, you know, a mobile peer. It can be somebody on their cell phone or something. Um, and that's something the CyberCos way back when actually did we well. Were able to do, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah yeah so in, in this in this environment, you have a lot of uh, you know scattered sites so so um, you know similar to uh, other companies you have pr- you know producers which have well sites scattered all over the place, but they are fixed they do not move around um, in our case, we do not connect directly to those we connect to the producers uh, after their processing so so those are still sites that are that are geographically separated but uh, but they are fixed, and they do not move around either um, one of the one of the challenges is um, is of course the plethora of equipment that is out there you know and you know Yes, I'd like to say in one fell swoop, we'll go and change everything. But uh, that involves, you know, capital expenditure to purchase equipment and also the human time factor, you know, someone's got to go out there and install the equipment, right? So those are all real challenges in, uh, you know, instead of saying, oh, why don't we just change everything with a new equipment? Well, that's easy to say, but uh, a little harder to do, right? So and of course, the downtime involved while the transition is occurring, right, which is, you know, people are unhappy with downtime with anything, and this is uh, n- no different, right? So, so um, in, you know, in this case, it's it's basically how to build a reliable network, and uh, and I'm trying to go for a uh, a packet switch network instead of a, a circuit switch network because a lot of the the network inf- infrastructure is based on you know the maximum bandwidth that this application can possibly use up right which was which has been for a very for a very long time the the way to design a reliable network is to say this application you know if it's a voice it'll be 64k and with a little bit of overhead on it 70, so, 70 or so k with the signaling you know we'll allocate that much bandwidth to this application and then we'll come up with the total bandwidth that we need and then design the the network around that bandwidth however and when you build a network like that you will have situations where you're using one Service and say the voice channel is completely not used right now, you know. But you are using, you know, uh, c- uh, you know, computer data on another channel, which has been allocated this much because that's all the bandwidth you had left. Uh, and uh, you know, these days we're seeing that as as a waste of infrastructure because we're saying, well, well, we allocated all this bandwidth for voice, but there's no voice conversation going on at all why are we you know still and there's another application on on this link that needs extra bandwidth you know it's being bottlenecked right now why can we not use the bandwidth that is not being used by the other application you know and that's that's and that's similar to you know the lt kind of build out where we're going for a uh, for a packet switched architecture where you're saying okay what's happening at this exact millisecond you know how can we divvy up the bandwidth properly right so but that requires a lot of of smart uh smart equipment and uh it comes down to the whole. Well, we got still got to talk to legacy equipment that that is out there and has has been working for quite some time, and it's on the plan to be changed, but it's not going to be changed right now because nice. because of several factors, right? So it's a lot of work in trying to move forward, but still not dropping support for the for the older stuff out there until it's all been able to. We, we've all been able to change it out, right? So. And we, yeah, we're, we are going for more uh, circuit switched kind of architecture networks as opposed to, to you know, more analog stuff where timing is is a, is a major major issue. It's it's like slow TDM is basically yeah. how you can look at it, and uh, you know. It's, it'll still be around for, for quite some time, but, uh, you know, it's it's supporting all this stuff. So, you know, when, when you talk to people and you're saying, oh, well, RS-232, dial-up modems and all that stuff, and they're like, well, who uses those anymore? Uh, we're still using them. And, and, and very critical, mission critical, and also, you know, critical to life and safety of people, not only employees or, or anything, but people, you know, geographically close because uh, a lot of this is it just needs to work it doesn't need to be high speed or anything you know it just needs to just needs to get there is 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 the way we have to look at the uh, the, uh kind of
2: data that we transfer here so so karen how does your average work day look like so you have your own bts that you look after right and then people can call you what? when they, like cell tower, right?
1: Yes. BTS? Well, we don't look (laughs) at a cell, and and it's not really a cellular architecture. It's more of a a cellular architecture would imply that you have nodes that are potentially mobile, and they can actually go from site to site. If you were to move a site from talking to one tower to another tower, there would be a lot of back-end work involved to change it because it would not be, you know, Quick roaming or, or there's no handoff. That's that's not the way the the network is designed, right? So, so okay. I don't know if that answers your question. <laughs> well, like
2: what do you do like every day? Like you leave your truck, you it's, get it's, calls. It's, it's
1: either I'm either supporting old equipment or putting in new equipment. Okay. Is, is, is is pretty much the way you can sum it up, right? And with a little bit of supporting office staff, you know, end users, a little sprinkle
0: in between, right? So. And of course, uh, you're out on here. <coughs> Out on your new property here, which you've always dreamed of having a, a nice rural property to live on, and uh, so we've we've been playing with the full selection of snow clearing toys nice uh, we this have. weekend. We've been uh, we've got the what brand of is the uh, is it still?
1: Oh yeah, for the it's a combi system. Uh, it's a, like so, a
0: two-cycle engine. You can load up a bunch of different accessories yeah, it's, on it's it. it's got
1: multiple attachments on it. You know, I, and, and, and the competing, uh, you know, yard equipment manufacturers have made something. This is just a steel uh, implementation of it, right? So the one I I, I acquired had uh, had the leaf blower attachment on it, which is which looks completely, absolutely nothing like the leaf blower you're used to seeing, which is more of a you know a, a tangential. Style fan. This is more of an axial style tunnel blower mm-hmm. on a stick, which is which looks different but uh, seems to get the job done. Now Great for blowing yeah. the snow
0: off the off the deck and that sort of thing. Yeah,
1: yeah. Now my major appeal for that is that yes, I can get a weed trimmer for it in the winter in the summertime, but uh, now we're in wintertime, so I'm not thinking about that yet. What I am thinking about is I can get the power brush attachment for it, so it'll be a small handheld power brush. It'll be similar to the big commercial grade 40 inch wide uh, walk behind power brushes that you see people using to clear off sidewalks and commercial properties or whatever but uh just a, a smaller scale device you know and you know yes i could do this all by hand but uh like as joel says it make it makes the, the activity it's, fun it's right all, it's so it's
0: all in the snow toys so we also have uh and so then you've also had your um walk behind snow blower that you had purchased earlier a couple of years ago uh and then uh so and the, you know quite top of the line, quite a nice model. And that's my tried, tested, and true unit. You know, I've done
1: a few condo parking lots with it, and yes, it might have been a bit small for that application, but you know, I did the job, so I've been comfortable with that. And uh, what I did also purchase is when I I purchased the property right away, I got a a small garden tractor, just a little 28-horsepower V2 powered uh garden tractor and uh you know a v-twin sure yeah and uh yeah it's a 54 inch cutting deck that's that's for the summertime but for the wintertime, i picked up a uh, belt-driven snow blower snow snow thrower whatever you want to call it attachment for it Uh, now the reason why i went for uh, a craftsman product is because uh the snow attachment features a electric winch a 12 volt winch that hooks onto the front of the unit and it gives you a kind of a like a quasi three-point hitch at the front where it can pivot on the lower two pins and and is pulled up and down by the electric winch compared to the you know the, the john deere product you know the de facto standard but uh but uh, on that one you there's literally a large lever arm that you have to you know right pull up and down to to lift which would the, be no yeah, fun so. it would take <laughs> the fun out of the whole experience <laughs> yeah yeah now um, the, you know then there's some there's some things that that come with uh, you know using a a two-wheel drive garden tractor for snow removal duty right. so um part one is that uh that snow thrower attachment is 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 very heavy it's it's all steel you know it's you know even and even the chute and all that right so there's there's a whole bunch of weight that is being attached to the front of the vehicle
0: um yes you sit on the back end of the vehicle but it's uh well on the front end it's got these little mini tires um and i you know i've been taking i took it out for you know a couple hours today and uh doing the driveway which isn't paved so sir so you've got to balance balance the uh the front end to make sure that you're not you know scraping the gravel but still getting a, a, enough snow which is great for the the, elect- the electrically controlled winch to bring it up and down um but sometimes you know if it's too low and and just like the walk behind you sort of have to raise it up a little bit to get over a, a sticking point or whatnot and then but also just turning too tightly uh you know especially in the snow where you're slipping all over the place Sometimes you know, and and actually even when you're when you're snow blowing sometimes the wheels the front wheels aren't steering anything cuz the 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 it's the, just
1: plowing snow the, Yeah exactly the snow blower
0: yeah. is yeah. just guiding itself um and so that's a bit of a challenge but uh and of course uh this weekend we also discovered that the throttle control was completely misaligned so all the time Kevin has been had having a lot of difficulty getting it started but in the end it was just the choke was not all the way in um, where it should be, or when it was in the choke position, it wasn't actually in choke. So mm-hmm.
1: Well, on, on most, on, yeah, on most uh, lawn garden equipment, there's a uh, like the throttle controls are attached to a Bowden cable. Look that up on Wikipedia if you don't know, but uh, it's it's like you know it's a cable inside a uh, a, a tube, right? And uh, it's just like a bicycle brake cable is what some people call it. Um, anyway, it was uh, it was set far too too far f- uh, forward, which meant that um, when you tried to Control the throttle into low speed. You'd actually be bending the cable because it would it would try and go further than than what the the mechanism would allow. And when you tried to go into choke, it would never go into choke because it was too short on the other end to be able to to activate the choke control. So after, it was a very very simple fix. Um, it was just uh, just to you know loosen the cable and back it off and tighten it back in. And uh, now you know when you actually push it all the way forward past high past maximum throttle into the choke position, it actually engages the proper um the proper parts. position yeah, yeah. exactly so so you know and we were looking at a bunch of stuff oh do we have gas in the in the in the vehicle yeah we can you know is our fuel filter the fuel clogged? Filter, or, you know? yeah. yeah the fuel yeah.
0: filter looked didn't look full enough and
1: everything so and i get you know this was a problem that apparently was has been since since i purchased the the device and uh you know <laughs> i was kind of wondering you, <laughs> <laughs> the machine <laughs> yeah, everything is a device to me but uh yeah. but uh you know, in the summertime, it was it was fine. You know, you just crank it for a bit longer. But still, I was wondering because I have a lot of, you know, manually, you know, recoil start small engine equipment, and they start in the first pole. So I was kind of wondering why on an electric, uh, electric starter engine here and if, and you know the premium series briggs and stratton at at, at that you know yeah. why i would be cranking for for you know five seconds before it would be catching right and of course in the winter time it's getting colder and it just won't at all so we would just kill the poor battery and then yeah we would charge it back up yeah
0: and uh, and of course to for all these toys you've got a nice heated garage with the in-floor Heating, mm-hmm.
1: um, yeah. So um, one of the criteria that I was looking for when I was looking for a place was that uh, it had a shop or garage that was a heated space, and uh, you know around around these parts you see more of the in-floor radiant heating instead of uh, forced air or overhead infrared heating, which is more more common or more more com- more common I've seen in the city anyway. Um, around it's these parts, easier yeah. to implement and add on to, right? I mean, yes, yes, yes. So the forced air, you know, you literally really just bolt on the heater heater into just the corner hole, and away yeah, you go. You just poke out a chimney out of gas line, done, right? Same with the infrared heaters. You just hang it, uh, chimney and gas line. That's all you need. So with, uh, with uh, in-floor heating, of course, the uh, piping had to be in place before the uh, concrete floor was poured. Of course, there's no real way to do it, uh, do it again afterwards if you didn't want to apart from, you know, wrecking the whole floor and doing it again doing it again right so even in a lot of places i looked at around here um had piping in place in the floor no boiler installed or anything like that but you know it's it's the fact that it's it's been pre-piped hmm. now and in, in, in this in this place uh came with a boiler it's uh it's an actual real boiler it's a Lars mini therm uh which is apparently branded a few dozen other things these days but uh hmm. um you know, in in the past, people have literally been using forty gallon hot water tanks as boilers. But uh, recent uh, building code changes have kind of outlawed those because oh, they, they're they're, they're they're not uh, they're not really intended for boiler duty. Right? Your 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 domestic water heater tanks are not intended for what boilers. It, what is
0: the problem? Is it just the the, the duty cycle? And
1: uh, also the fact that it stores a whole lot of water in a tank, right? So, I'm not entirely completely familiar with these because I haven't dealt with uh, in, in in floor heating. But uh, it was just a change that was done relatively recent, like like in the 2000s era, oh, yeah. that uh, that you weren't allowed to do that anymore. Now, of course, people still do. You know, just stick a pump onto a water heater. What more do you need, right? Kind of thing, but. Uh, But uh, actually, having a a boiler is good because it's designed to 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 take incoming water and heat it up to the desired temperature, as opposed to a tank, which uh, slow. You know, it's it's designed to have water sit in it while it while it heats, right? So, so just two different philosophies of uh, of of equipment uh, and 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 build up. But uh, yeah, no, I was happy that it was actually a real boiler. So Joel was (laughs) jokingly saying, "Oh, my first boiler," but. yeah, yeah, exactly. It's a, it's, a, it's a cute little unit, and uh, yeah, I had some learning to do on it. So, like, you know, as to pressures, because um, when the temperature dropped, I actually started losing liquid pressure in the system, so that that would mean there was air in the system. And then your, your uh, circulation pump, the pump that actually takes the water and uh, pushes it into the floor, that pump was just sucking up air, right? So... Um, uh, you know, there's m- multiple different ways of 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 implementing implementing a boiler system. Apparently, it's supposed to be a fill valve on 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 the way they're supposed to be done. But uh, this looked to be a, a do it quick and do it cheap kind of kind of setup. So I actually used a drill pump and uh, used my drill pump to just put water in through the drain drain uh, spigot there. And is it so. just
0: it's just water? Like it's not uh, freon or anything?
1: It's uh, it's it's well, it's not freon. It's not a refrigerant system. It's. Uh, it just has antifreeze in case the system is shut down and, and mm. you know the temperature drops below below freezing. Um, you know, I haven't gone as far to you know whip up the test strips and you know start figuring out what my uh, what my mixture of propylene glycol to water. Glycol, has been. right? Yeah, but uh, I have just been uh, just pumping distilled water into the system. So so you know, I, I and I suspect the previous owner just used ball water to pump it into the system because uh, you know there's a lot of uh, corrosion in the mm, in the system yeah. which you wouldn't see if it was done with pure distilled water but of course that that that's a that's a time consuming task to buy a whole like many many bottles of uh, distilled water just to just to fill right. your system i mean I, I would i would find it worth it's worth it but you know it is what it is right now and i add in distilled water but that's probably just a small small percentage rate so right. so on on these actually you would think that uh, the return water would head straight into the boiler and you know, get heated and come back out, but that's uh, that's metallurgically wrong because you you know taking freezing cold water and sticking into a hot boiler pipe, you know it's generally not good. Now I'm not an expert in that to be able to explain what the what the effect is, but uh, you know you can you can you can severely damage your boiler by by doing so. Therefore, on these boiler systems, you actually have a a circulating loop where it takes the output and loops it back in. And then a mixing valve actually splits out a certain percentage of the incoming water back into the heating loop. And a certain amount of the water in the heating loop is, is pumped out through the circulation pump so that way uh yes your heating loop will run a f- like you know five or six degrees hotter than than your uh, output water but that means that there is no thermal shock to right. the boiler okay that makes
0: you sense.
1: know because in, in case you get really cold water from the ground just coming from coming straight into the boiler that would that would sh- that would thermally shock the uh, the whole system right so that's why you know you it, no, it's not just straight you know boiler output straight into the ground so that was that was a little bit of something to understand there so on, on this you know on my shop it's only a, it's a 30 by 40 shop so it's not uh, it's not huge and it's got a single it's a single uh zone system right, right? so right. the only improvement i really done to it is it had one of those uh those you know line voltage uh Mechanical thermostats. thermostats, which don't really have markings, they're just kind of like somewhere between 15 and 35. You know, that's <laughs> that's about uh, your setting. So, I replaced that with a uh, digital thermostat, just the cheapest Canadian tire special, and that was designed for uh, baseboard heating. So, I was really looking for something as line voltage. Now, that circulation pump is nowhere near being like the 25 so amps that baseboard heating devices can get up to, but uh, I needed it just to be able to switch on and off the. Uh, the circulation pump. Now, what's funny about those uh, electric heating thermostats is that they, they're they actually uh, triac controlled. So they can actually provide uh, partial. Oh. Uh, you know, they can ramp up. They're fully variable. It's not on or off like you would expect the thermostatic control to be, right? Um, which is nice if you were using it in a baseboard heating environment. So I actually had to go through the setup menu on the thermostat and actually disable that feature. Because i for a circulation pump, the only modes it can take are on and off, you know because kind of having half on doesn 't really help you at all like it 's <laughs> it's, it's not variable as if you were using resistive heating right so right. so that was just something I had to look out for i didn 't even know that was a feature you know i I thought you know, thermostatic control. By me by my definition means that' it 's on until it gets to the set point and then it 's off you know mm-hmm. as opposed to being fully variable but uh, <laughs> you know the nine 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 special had this feature on it i didn 't uh, wasn 't really expecting that but so, there there you go you know I, you know i 've been Learning lots about the boiler, and you know, I don't know, like that has been you know the the, the biggest new thing for me to to play with in, in the whole place was just you know how does that system actually work? Mm-hmm. How many press how much pressure do you put on the water side? Now I know it's 20 psi on the liquid side, and then and then you fill up the uh, expansion tank with air. Mm-hmm. You know that way when the temperature drops, the expansion tank can actually can make up liquid from the tank. To, right. You know to keep the the liquid side of the system fully charged and you know without air without air bubbles inside it right and uh and then of course when it gets heated up by the boiler it the whole liquid system expands and it expands into the tank mm-hmm. and uh kind of what we're looking at is just to set it to a happy medium where it keeps the uh the liquid side of the system at 20 psi right is the sweet spot is what i found because any higher it will start blowing the pressure relief valve <laughs> at 30 psi and uh and any less it'll start getting air bubbles so Hmm. This is that's the perfect medium as far as I've I've been able to to play with this. So,
2: so okay, does your boiler still sit on those two by fours and on they, the concrete so they block? sit on
1: those the concrete of the side of the side of the a bit of a side of the side of the of the side of the cheap kind of the of the because of sitting on of the side of the side of the side of the side intended the intended for. You know, if I were building a rack I it, I would take side but uh, that's, probably the electrician in me that's thinking about doing Unistrat. everything on unistrut yeah so yeah you know and in in, in, in the industrial settings that i work with every day you know it, that's the standard to to mount equipment is you you take unistrutter super strutter or whatever you want to call it a, a 1200 d 1200 and and mount your equipment that way right so that's why i'm looking at this concrete block and two by four kind of setup and i'm like what is going on here so, but uh, you know it's it's been cold. i we've had the you know the minus minus 28 days so far. I haven't seen the minus 37 days yet. But uh, the system has has worked out nicely. One thing I'd like to do is just to borrow a thermal imaging camera from work and just uh, point it at the ground and just take a photo and just see what yeah. the uh, yeah, where the lines actually go in the ground there. So the
2: coldest day this week for you will be Tuesday with a low of minus 23. You have to wait a bit longer for minus your minus 37. Yeah, kilo. exactly. That'll be in January,
0: February. Oh yeah, unusual. it's coming. It's still coming so uh other new things on the horizon obviously Kevin's been very busy here in White Court and uh and uh with the new yard and everything um but uh I've been uh whoa I'm just screwing with my mic here bravo bravo Joel um I've been sort of putting together a bit of a video collective I'm uh, looking to graduate next uh sort of this coming spring and so I've been getting together with a couple of my colleagues, um, also former graduates from the Technical Theatre Program and Design Program at the U of A, uh, Elijah Lindenberger and Aaron Gruber. And, uh, and so we've been getting together, meeting up since about May now. Uh, just sort of talking about what, what the possibilities are in terms of, of video and projection in the theater, which is really an area that we're, we're really interested in. I'm especially, uh, in terms of the interactive components that you can get involved, playing with things like the Xbox Connect with MadMapper, uh, which is sort of a, uh, a video mapping tool for projectors. Um, you know, plenty of, of VJ and, uh, and video control manipulation tools that are out there. Um, for your computer that are both, you know, inexpensive for for everyday computers and also media servers and all that sort of thing. Um, So that's sort of what we're we're really interested in looking into in terms of technology, but also in terms of the design. Um, Incorporating, uh, really incorporating the video and uh, interactive elements into theater, uh, into live events, um, in in sort of a dramaturgical way that really helps you uh, fulfill your vision for an event or tell the story uh, in in theater, and so that's sort of what we're we're interested in and forming. We formed a little company called Show Stages, uh, and we're looking at uh, you know really putting out a portfolio and doing some more uh, workshops with other people and and sort of getting getting the word out there about what is possible in terms of uh, video on stage and in the theater. And, uh, so that's sort of what I've been working on recently. And, uh, and so one of the first things that I'm looking at right now is, uh, I, blo- I was blogging a little bit back, uh, about the Raspberry Pi. And so I've got three of them now. Um, it's really interesting. It's a really interesting little product. It's a $35, uh, computer that, it, uh, it's got an HDMI port, a couple of USB ports, Ethernet, um, runs off of five volts, um, uh, through a micro USB connector, it's got an audio output as well as an RCA output for your video. Um, so it's got uh, some really good connections, and it's thirty five dollars. So you can uh, you know you can pick up a few of them without uh, without burning a hole in your wallet. And so that's sort of what I've been researching. It runs Linux off an SD card, and these are devices that are kind of aimed at the uh, educational. Yeah, it market. actually comes out of the UK. So um, there's a group, they, they sort of thought, they, they came up with this and they thought maybe they build a thousand of these boards, give them to elementary, uh, you know, young kids, um, teach them how to program. That was sort of the goal of the Raspberry Pi program. And they put it out there and people went nuts. You know, all these hobbyists who are playing with Arduino and um, working with these mini computers, they thought, well, this is awesome. Who wouldn't want for 35 bucks? Uh, a little computer that you can do pretty much anything with for embedded applications, um, what's really neat is that you don't need to learn you know all of the details of uh, you know and Arduino is great in the sense that you can uh, you know all the software libraries are built for you. You don't need to learn the embedded platform um, as much. Uh, however, with the Raspberry Pi, it takes it a step further because you're already you, you know you turn it on, it runs Linux, um, and then you can address it's got some really great uh, input output pins on it because um, it's just based off an ARM processor um, from Broadcom. So you can just uh, link up those, uh, you know, GPIO ports, uh, general purpose input-output, uh, into other electronics, into relays and, and control, you know, switch your lights on and off um, from things like Python. You know, there's a really great community out there uh, doing uh, software development for the Raspberry Pi um, so it's really neat, and uh, it's also got a really powerful video chip. It's it's you know it's obviously a big system on a chip um, from from Broadcom, similar to what goes into uh, the older iPhones. Obviously, Apple makes their own A four, A five, A six chips now. Um, but you know things like the Roku, any set top box, um, you know they've just got a, a Broadcom Arm chip that has the processor, the memory, uh, and the graphics chip all integrated into that. Uh, and so the graphics chip is actually very powerful. It can do 1080p output off the HDMI port, um, and it works really well. Um, but what's really strange about it is, you know, and it supports uh, OpenGL ES, which is sort of the mobile version of OpenGL, which is sort of the graphics uh, graphics programming layer of, uh, you know, the standard, you know, comparable to DirectX on, uh, with Microsoft. Um so it's it's open open standard for for graphics uh, programming, and so it's the mobile version. So it, you know things like you know you know VLC or something or or any other uh, graphics program. It's not going to translate perfectly um, because it's more comparable to something on a mobile device. Mm-hmm. So you were talking about the Nokia uh, platform. Oh yeah, That's, Qt. Yeah. Um, and so uh and it's interesting. So Nokia used to have. They actually sold the company to a company called Digia um but uh it's it's a software framework called QT and i don't know at this point i think it's a dead project um unfortunately because the guy who was doing it left Nokia and then soon after it was sold to Digia so i'm pretty sure it's finished with um but it was really it had some really interesting promise because QT is a is a framework um, for developing software, you know, for set-top boxes, embedded devices. But also, it's it's completely, it's really cross-platform. Uh, you'd be sort of interested in this, Kevin, because it, it actually will run on VXworks. You can write programs, you know, Skype is written in, in QT. So you can write programs once and then port it to any, a bunch of different operating systems, including all these embedded operating systems, um, which I thought was pretty cool. And so they had a whole port of QT, set up for the raspberry pi and then it got sort of you know canceled and people aren't really doing it anymore but i think it was pretty neat because they were doing some really cool stuff with graphics um things like android are on its way to the raspberry pi um but it's just you know we're just waiting right now or at least i am um for uh accelerated x11 so x11 is uh sort of the window manager in the same way that you know windows explorer or uh, you know, any sort of visual shell. Um, that's sort of how, you know, what X11 or uh, the X-Window system is on uh, on Linux. And so we're just waiting for that to be hardware accelerated so that, you know, when you drag your window around and you're trying to play video, it's not like two frames per second processing through the processor, but actually being accelerated by the graphics card. Um, so that's sort of something that's still being developed on the Raspberry Pi. But I think once we get to that stage... There's going to be a lot, a lot of major improvements. You know, being, being able to open up VLC because, of course, VLC is open source. It's already on the ARM platform. It just isn't quite accelerated yet on on the Raspberry Pi. So, I think once that comes, I think there's going to be really good promise. And and uh, I think next semester my research is going to be into the Raspberry Pi and how we can use it on on stage. Um, it's, you know, for $35, I mean, it's it can be a great uh, MIDI to DMX adapter or, or OSC to MIDI um, adapter because it's got the serial connections right on there. You could just, you know, plug in the right connectors and, you know, throw it somewhere on stage. It could be wireless with battery powered um, to convert, you know, any sort of sensor device and report back to your control system for lighting, for sound, for video, um, I think there's a lot of promise there for $35. And, and, and you know, there's certain flexibility and to be able to program it yourself I think is, is really, really cool. Let's talk
2: about the device, actually, for a second, itself. So it doesn't come out of a case. I remember that part. Are no, they it's making just a case the board. For it? Yeah. Are they making a case for it?
0: Oh, yeah. Like, I mean, that's what's really great about it is that there's so many people out there that are working on this. So there's people who've designed a whole bunch of different cases for it that you can get, you know, in you know different plastics. Uh, you know it's it's a lot of the same community of the people who do you know like their home 3D printer so they've got designs that you can just download and 3D print you know for your as a case for your raspberry pi so.
2: because otherwise it just looks kind of fragile
0: i think oh closed. yeah for sure but i mean you know you put it in a case you put it on your desk uh whatever you need and to that, do and that it. that's your
2: flexibility right
1: yeah so at the time that you uh, acquired this uh the raspberry pi it was a uh, like a test kind of Kind of thing, like you couldn't just go in and buy ten of them.
0: At the time. When I first got, when I got my first one, they were limiting it to one per person, and then shortly after, actually, they uh they opened it up so you can buy like ten at a time and that sort of thing. And and actually, right now, the big news is that they 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 started with the model B, which is thirty five dollars, and now they're going to start manufacturing model A, which wasn't as you know people weren't as interested in uh, quite you know initially, uh, which is only be twenty five dollars. Um, Which doesn't have it, only has one USB port and has slightly. uh, What happened is that now the Model B has 512 megs of RAM, so the Model A has 256, and uh, because they doubled the RAM on the Model B, but the Model A is going to have 256 uh one usb port and no ethernet um but otherwise it's the same um so just a little bit cheaper if you don't need to if you just want to use you know if you just want to program or whatever you don't want to do ethernet but is it the,
2: physically the same circuit board it is actually
1: is it? just what? just missing the the parts for the, the components other.
2: yeah so it turns on linux so you can install any version of linux like ubuntu or whatever um, they, it, it has me. to be running for, um,
0: part processor
2: architecture. Yeah. So, um,
0: there's a bunch of different distributions that people have been trying about. Um, one, you know, the notable ones are the one that they recommend, which is, uh, um, a Debian distribution, um, which is sort of the stock, the stock Linux. They've also got an XBMC distribution, which I've been using. Actually, I've been, I set it up at my house, um, cause you can use it with, as AirPlay. Um, with your iPhone. So you just shove an XBMC, do, I don't think you just have to turn it on, plug it into your network, plug in your pair of speakers and you can stream audio to it. That'd be off awesome. of your iPhone, iPad, whatever. Um, and of course, you know, it does video too. You can stream YouTube to it. Uh, really neat, uh, little application for it. And of course they, they're using, uh, some hardware, solid video and stuff like that, uh, to do, to do all that. So, uh, RAS, I think it's called RaspBMC. Um, for for that distribution and uh, and obviously you know things like the Qt framework, oftentimes they'll just offer a uh, um, like a download of the SD card image, and then you just write it to your SD
2: card, and away you go. So. Yeah, I'm still missing an AirPlay. That'd be great if I can get that. Excuse me through this. Yeah, no, it's it's pretty cool.
0: That would um, be cool. <laughs> yeah, and uh, so yeah, the Raspberry Pi. Pretty neat little uh, little device. And I think I'm mean, going to... The other new thing, they, they've made a Model B revision 2 sort of thing. And uh, so then they've also got uh, uh, mounting holes on it, which I thought was pretty handy.
2: Can you, like, cluster them together to create one big Raspberry Pi Uh, some
0: people have yeah there's already been some people who use it as a big supercomputer I mean they're not
2: powerful devices
0: (laughs) I think they're I think the stock is 700 megahertz ARM but you can scale it up to you know one gigahertz sort of thing uh, you know, they're not super fast.
2: Um, you know, that's not
0: really where their advantage is, but...
2: Uh, well, for 35 bucks, yeah. It's yeah. not where they're really designed for either way. Yeah. Is this a well-documented product and supported product,
0: or is it just kind of like this is what it is, do what you want with it kind of thing? Um, yes and no. I mean, the problem is with the Broadcom chip is it is a proprietary chip. Um, you know, Broadcom made it. They they provide some information about it, obviously, um, but really, uh, you know, you need to have a business relationship to get a lot of the details um, about that chip. So, I mean, certainly, all the software development is coming from the Raspberry Pi Foundation. The guy who leads it, Eben, is actually works at Broadcom. Uh, so that's sort of how they have access to that sort of thing. Um the, the but but certainly, the, there's a huge community with it, and so there is information coming out about it all the time. You know, if you need to know what you know what pin on the on the board is is 7 like there's got to be like a dozen different diagrams on the internet on where that is and how to access it with six different software libraries so i mean there's a ton of information about it um but in terms of you know specific authority you know it, it varies but um but i think you know certainly to, if you want to get started on projects there's absolutely information out there to, to get out and get started
1: mm, sounds good yep
0: So that's the Raspberry Pi. Oh, yeah. I forgot to mention uh, with Show Stages, we are doing a bit of a podcast with them. Uh, So uh, if you go to showstages.com, we're just sort of meeting with a couple, you know, industry people who we've worked on projects with or um, have gotten an interview with uh, to sort of talk about, um, you know, what what video in the theater and uh, in production really means to them and, and uh, so we are trying to update that a little bit more often as well. Uh, we've talked to uh, Stefan uh, um who we worked on a delete project over the summer with, and uh, Patrick Finn, who's sort of a, a really cool thinker from UFC uh, about that sort of thing. So uh, be sure to
2: check that out if you're interested in
0: that as well. Um,
2: on to MadMapper?
0: yeah. I don't know if we've talked about MadMapper on the Duck Podcast or not, but uh, so MadMapper is sort of, uh, it'll take in any video source uh, on your computer uh, via Siphon, as is on the Mac, um, and then you can sort of take bits of it and map them onto a 3D surface. So you can hook up as, you know, as pretty much as many projectors as you want, um, and then sort of uh, distort them to fit, uh, onto the physical surface, so uh, really neat technique. And there's there's videos all over the internet of people doing projection mapping and and doing some cool stuff. So uh, and the big thing that came out with MadMapper in just recently is um, something called Mad Light, is what they're calling it. And it's basically pixel mapping. And again, pixel mapping, not really new, um, but I just it, something about it really clicked with me in terms of developing sort of ambient light based on the video. Um so I did a bit of, a bit of an experiment um, where I played some video you know some really colorful bright video of uh, you know hot air balloon flying away and uh, and then took some pixels and mapped those into some really big uh, LED lights. and so as you know as the hot air balloon is taking off, big multicolored, you know the room is just filled with those colors um, that you're seeing in this video and as the big flame shows up and uh, you know, is bursting into the hot air balloon. The, the whole room fills with a deep red, you know, of, of that color. So I'm really interested in seeing how, how that can be effectively used, uh, you know, in performance and, and that sort of thing. And, uh, yeah, so that's Mad Light.
2: So Mad Mapper is used for um, projections. Is it um, for Mac and Windows? Is it for No, both? it's only for the Mac. Oh. Um where where can you buy the software online? It's, yeah, it's
0: all online. Uh, it's from a French company. It's not cheap, um, but I did decide to buy it um, just because I thought it'd be a pretty valuable tool, and and I think it's pretty pretty worthwhile. They do have an education discount. So
2: are there several versions of this program, like a light, a pro?
0: No, there's just the one version, and uh, they do have a VJ product called Modulate um, that's sort of. It didn't. I, I tried it out, uh, the, just the demo version. It didn't integrate as well as I thought it would. But Modulate is a pretty cool program. It's been around for a really long time. Um, sort of similar to VDMX or Koji or some of these other VJ software, um, which I played around a little bit. Uh, not quite as powerful as VDMX, um, but I think it could operate quite nicely on older hardware, which is a pretty good big plus, um, which is the uh, Modulate software from...
2: So would you suggest getting a beefier machine, like a quad-core Mac, to work on this? Or your usual Um, 13-inch dual-core machine would be able to handle it? You know what? It's really about the
0: graphics card uh, for the software um, because it is operating on Siphon. So Siphon is sort of a – the way it works is, you know, Programs can write it's a, it's a feature of Well, it's not really a feature of OS X But it's, soft, it's a framework that has been written From a guy called um, Is it Vade? He's got a website um, V002 I think it's Vade But he's written the Siphon Framework And uh, a whole bunch of apps are on board airbeam use it um uses it um which is a great sort of video uh iphone uh, Yeah,
2: we we didn't talk about airbeam yet we should probably mention that
0: yeah airbeam uh really great great tool for this um basically spits out you know your iphone camera over the network into your mac um or other you know i device into a web browser into siphon um so with siphon you know you can uh you can basically throw video around uh, between applications on your computer without any delay, because the 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 video is actually staying on the graphics card. So um, it's really easy, especially it's supported in Quartz Composer, um, to just throw video around between applications, which is you know incredibly powerful because there's no delay. It's it's not even like your um, there's any. Anything at all because it's just staying. It's just a texture that's staying on the graphics card. So in, in terms of performance, you're going to want something that you know has a good graphics card. Uh, if doing a lot of them, you know, a better graphics card is always going to be better. Uh, you know, uh, discrete is always going to be better. Uh, you know, something from Nvidia or AMD um, or AMD. Yeah, AMD. Uh, Intel three thousand, four thousand is probably fine too, but. Hmm.
2: Sounds like fun. Yeah, you can do a lot. I still need to see it in action sometime, but yeah. I saw some YouTube videos and it looks pretty incredible. Yeah, to do with Mad
0: it. Mapper is pretty neat, and I and I'm still, you know, trying to get a few more more demos going. Um, in January, we're actually going to have a uh, a bit of a conference um, with CITT, which is the Canadian Institute for Theater Technology. Um, At the university, we're going to be, uh, Show Stages is going to be presenting a bit of a workshop uh, with an introduction to video technology. And then I'm going to be working, I guess, with uh, Matt Skopic, who's our sound designer at the U of A, uh, to play with things like triggers um, and possibly some mad mapping. Although uh, there's a guy, um, Owen, uh, I can't remember his last name, Owen. He's actually the guy from, of uh, Guru Digital Arts College. Um and so uh he on the side he works with um with a bit of a company that does uh VJing, DJing, and uh a little more video stuff. So I think he's gonna do a bit of demoing on that. But uh, so yeah, you definitely wanna check that out, CITT um video workshop coming uh coming
2: in January. Sounds interesting. I'll definitely sign up for that. I got the email. So I got the email. So you that should definitely email. be It'd be definitely interesting to see what you guys are up to then. For sure. So well, I think that's uh, oh, that's all we had written down. Final for... Cut Pro 10, After Effects, and composing. Yeah, I don't know where we're going to talk about. That. Mm-hmm. Okay.
0: I guess Final Cut Pro 10 came out. I think we talked about it before, though. Mm. I don't know. I finally started using it. It's pretty pretty okay. I remember you were you were unhappy with what oh, the yeah, name yeah, was yeah. at the beginning. Yeah. It. Um, Oh, yeah, we did talk about it last time. Well, I haven't—I still haven't actually gotten around to spending a lot of time actually editing major a major work on it. Um, but I've gotten to sort of understand, you know, compound clips,
2: that sort of thing. I'm still not convinced. I don't know. I'm a very recent user of Final Cut Pro ten. Recently got it. So far, I've been pretty happy with it, but I don't use it for nearly as advanced features as you probably do. I absolutely do no work yet with multicam or any other heavy editing it just it offers me much more than I could do with iMovie, many more effects, features, and with helper apps like Motion Compressor, I can again create my custom text animations and export in any format I want, rather than just you know being confined by iMovie's various yeah, methods. Yeah, I think
0: something I encountered this semester. Like, I was playing around. We we found an XServe in the garbage, an XServe G5. Plugged it in, got it going, you know. And, uh, you know, you start to see that Apple is just really not interested in a lot of this high-end stuff. They are a consumer company. And, I mean, you can say that, but to actually be sitting in front of the XServe using this ridiculous server administration utility that, like, just gives you a bunch of errors because it doesn't actually work and, like, you know... You start to realize Apple doesn't use the stuff themselves, so how do you expect them to actually support it well? And that's why they killed off the Xserve, is that they don't use it themselves, they don't know who's using it, like they have no concept of how it should work, um, or, or or sort of you know a case study for where it might be used. So you start to realize you know, and 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 with now they're sort of targeting it as like a, a small business. Uh, tool. And I can totally get into that. Like, I'm sort of like, you know, this makes sense. You know, you set up your Mac Mini in your studio space. Who've, you've got, you know, a dozen people on Macs. They just need a place to synchronize, you know, their files, maybe have their own calendar or wiki or whatever that they've got on. So, you know, and some of this stuff is pretty cool. You know, the podcast producer, it's a great tool. But are people going to actually use it? It's pretty hard. It's pretty hard sell. You know, it's a lot of money. Um, to implement that. So I can see how the X server and, and the and the one U servers are on their way out. And I can see how they're targeting some of these tools to more prosumer prosumer things and, and, and why people go with um people that have a roadmap. <laughs> you know, I mean it's hard to invest in Final Cut Pro ten or even Motion um when not everybody's using it. Motion's a really tricky one because uh you know not everybody knows it. It's always changing, um, you know the, the the plugins and all that. It's it's, diff- it's really difficult.
2: Okay, well, Apple right now sells Mac Mini server for one thousand, and then the Mac Pro beast of a machine server for three thousand fifty. Yes, yeah. but I mean those aren't. Yeah.
0: I mean, that's sort of a joke. You can also just buy a computer
2: yeah, like, and install a OS server on as it. As much as I love the Mac Pro, it's the price of it is just atrocious. Like, yeah. That's... So why. Yeah, exactly. Why would you do... I mean, at the end of the day, if you're just doing file
0: sharing on it, why not just use a Linux server or a Windows server? No, look... Right? Mac, I mean, it's going to be half the cost. Look, I would so. never get a Mac Pro just for fi- like file sharing. And, and at the end of the day, most of the time, that's what all you need out of your server, right? It's never... I mean, sure, you could use it for, uh, you know, client administration. But, I mean, there aren't that many Mac networks that big, right? It's you don't, and, and and a lot of it can be done using imaging or, or that sort of thing. Look, so, you, you don't need 12 cores to push people some nails. Wow, well, that calendars. too. That too. Yeah. So, anyways, it's always interesting. Pros and cons. Yeah. It's just
1: interesting because Apple doesn't have a high availability, you know, like a a hardware RAID controller card, multiple power supplies, you know, that kind of server-grade stuff. And, and, you know, the out-of-band management, um, those are all server features that you do find in a, you know, the the, the big metal, you know, the...
2: (laughs) Well, server it, design platform as like,
1: opposed to selling. Yeah, I know. I, yeah. I can use a desktop computer as a server running the correct software. It all comes down to software. Mm-hmm. right? The only thing that that the hardware makes a difference is in in a server application. Is is you know is the, is the redundant hardware data center you know, right data center. So, so that kind right. of that kind of environment, which um, which you know the, the stuff that you do on Mac OS X server, OS Ten server. I guess you want to call it. Uh, don't really line up with with, with those kinds
0: of applications. Well, they're not right? data so, center activities. Yeah. You'd be a total nut to do that. Like, um, you know, like, why would you? Why would you run OS ten server in the data center? It makes no sense. Um, because you know, and, and again, it, it's partly the cloud. It's partly a lot of things. Um, so I think you know, it, it makes sense. It's a pain. It's sad, you know, for a lot of those people trying to maintain a a Mac server environment or whatever but
1: mm-hmm. but like you said you know anything that you use in a Mac Macintosh server environment can be done using a unix space or linux based right? Absolutely. for for your, you think. know for for centralized user management you know kerberos or whatever yeah. you decide to to go with right or if you're integrating into a windows network you have your active directory on windows server and that's you know well supported right yeah. so and and those are all things that um, that apple devices are more embracing you know i remember when when the first you know ipods came out or iphones came out you didn't have exchange integration right that Mm, was something i was missing and suddenly it's like okay well people do use exchange for email you know you can connect to that from an iDevice now well
0: and you can do it on your mac as well i mean that was something that was snow leopard actually that exchange showed up
1: Mm-hmm. So I guess we're seeing more more of these Apple products in, in the uh, at the end user end, as opposed to the core network and 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 data center environments where you know you don't see it anyway, kind of thing, right? So it doesn't really matter what, yeah, physically is there running the show, right? right? So so it's 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 down to you know to to good network design, right? The only thing is that you lose the whole package. You know, like the client-server package right. where you could say, oh, okay. Of win- yeah, of like Windows Server. Windows with Windows Server client, with the Windows you know? client, Windows o- desktop operating system, right, where that's a package deal and says this stuff works with this stuff, right, whereas, you know, Apple doesn't offer
0: such a thing. But but I think it. it I, the, yeah. what's interesting is that in many ways, I think increasingly, though, I mean, if Apple's goal has always been to break down that myth that, you know, Macs and PCs don't mix I think they've been pretty successful at it right I mean to the point that they dissolve their own server product (laughs) I mean that's that's pretty I mean that's a sign that they they achieve their goal because they are fully interoperable right Mm
1: -hmm.
0: especially now with with the with the uh, Macintosh
1: you know workstation and hardware being the same hardware architecture as well right so you know it comes down to you know if you had to and now also virtualization showed up you know mm-hmm. and and that's right. that's that's another thing that that's another factor that is 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 you know reducing the the gap if you will right yeah. so
0: well i think that's uh what what are, what are we looking at in terms of – i guess we're using ableton so we have no idea how much time
2: we've recorded doing we? how many minutes 87 87? 87 minutes and 45 seconds. Oh, there you go.
0: Okay. Well, that's a pretty good duck podcast mm-hmm. for our first... For, you know, our first time back in in, in, while, in, yeah. in, in
1: in many months now. I know usually we have our usual features like our app of the...
0: Uh, well, it used to be week, but now it's like app of the year and a half. <laughs> year and a half, yeah. I think, uh, well, I mean, AirBeam, you've got to check that one out. I think... Uh, I, may, I may even mention it last time, but I think AirBeam is pretty fantastic. Mm-hmm.
1: And one thing I did want to mention is, you know, kind of describe the, the network build-out of, uh, of a GR Geographically separated network. Now that I have my place in Whitecourt, and we're keeping the uh, the existing uh, network infrastructure at uh, AHTR in in Edmonton here, but uh, that could go on for (laughs) quite some time. Yeah, I could.
2: uh, We we would have a three-hour podcast.
0: Yes, next maybe next time we can talk more
2: about. And just to mention, AirBeam is an application for Mac Store of (laughs) forests of Active Directory for three (laughs) ninety-nine. $3.99. nine, three dollars and ninety nine cents. Yes, yes so. AirBeam on the on the iOS and Mac App Store. Yeah.
1: Yes. what well, I am impressed with AirBeam is that uh, I think you do get an HTTP. Yeah. It has a built-in web server. Embedded it's just a server. motion JPEG. Yeah, yeah, and it has an embedded web server on yep. your on your on your phone oh, basically. Totally yeah. yeah. captures video, audio. So I mean. Like, I am still disagreeing with this uh, software as a service cloud thing. You know, I, I just purchased the thermostat, and I'm I'm kind of annoyed <laughs> at the fact that I actually have to register it to Honeywell's Alarmnet servers. And I'm kind of like, hey, if why you can't, can't trust I Honeywell,
0: it? who can you trust?
1: Myself, <laughs> because I should be able to use an IP network thermostat, you know,
0: and on yeah, my own network. It's offline, like what you, Kevin, offline. say always say, Kevin is. Well, well, use the PLC. Why don't you just use a PLC? Well, <laughs>
1: maybe you will. Maybe I will. Yeah, 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 yeah.
0: No, I'm just trying out this. You know, because these
1: days, like, I think the catchphrase has been like cloud this, cloud that, cloud routers. We were looking at cloud routers. Cloud router with apps. Yeah, the other day, I and mean, I was, I was just kind of like, why would I have my router? software as a service and it's it's like well okay people don't want to do port forwards and all that stuff right just to have remote access to their equipment and i think the same concept was applied to this wi-fi thermostat product that honeywell's got out now and uh, i think they used to call it red link and now now it's more of a mainstream product you just buy it at home hardware or home depot or whatever that's 150 bucks or so right and uh,
2: the ones from home depot are the best
1: Okay. And uh you know, and, and they're marketing it as a cloud product meaning that you don't have to maintain your own network, you don't have to maintain your servers, you don't have to do port forwards. All you've got to do is just punch in this MAC address into Honey's Wells website and everything will work out by itself, you know. And I think for the average user that's great, but for me I'm just like why is my thermostat why is my environmental control data exiting my network whatsoever it does not need to exit my network so so you know it, it comes down to like you know yes software as a service cloud this cloud that but uh, i'm still somewhat disagreeing with it <laughs> and this is this kind of leads on to our previous discussion about apple and uh, and whether you maintain your own server or you mm-hmm. use apple's provided services you know the, right. their soft, software as a service type type uh I don't, I don't know if you could call it a product but it, it is a it's a paid service right and uh and you know you have users that are like you know i'd rather just pay for it and i don't want i don't want to have to care about the infrastructure you know but for myself i build the infrastructure and i, I i'm kind of well and especially that, you know, and also
0: with google apps going non-free mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's the other big thing. that was
1: another that was another big thing see this is what this is something that you you kind of you know with software as a service the the you know, the company or whoever providing the service is always able to change the terms of the service whenever they want to, you know, without just, it's a notification, not a consultation process, you know? Mm-hmm. So you always have to worry that, you know, either they go out of business or they change the terms and you might not agree with them. Right. But you've, you've, you've stayed with them for, for years. You have all your data with them, right. You have to be able to trust them. But when they, when, 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 software as a service, you know, when, 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 stuff like that happens you know they 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 pull out on you and say okay this is no longer going to be free that's a concerning thing you know can i trust you with anything else kind of thing right so this might make people move back to you know managing their own email you know i was going to transition a few more clients i was going to transition a few more clients to google apps and i was like this is a perfect fit because we've got less than 10 addresses you know or less than 10 users i don't have to worry about it And, and you know it's got the familiar gmail style user interface you know or not doesn't have to be gmail but you know the the whole google interface that people are accustomed to i can i can implement it in in our you know, in our corporate domain type environment, yeah. and that was the huge appeal of Google Apps. Now it's five dollars per user per per month, or or if you f- sign for a yearly, yearly term, it's like four dollars and fifty cents or something. There's a slight slight discount if you sign up for a year contract, but uh, you know that makes it significantly less appealing. Whereas now I'm going to be installing Sendmail on a server somewhere. You know, it's it's going to go back to that. So so you know I haven't had the best experiences with these software as a service things and uh, I'm always concerned that you know someone's going to discontinue the service and i'll be left I'll be left out right so and that's that's the plan yeah. like the, the companies want to discontinue services because if you kept using them you would be using them forever you know so
0: well free free services yeah I mean yeah. that's the thing like uh you know with but you can also understand that Google is a business you know and then they have to no, they have to right. you know uh, i i agree I agree to some extent but but at the same time there 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 is things that we cannot do i mean it's not it's not tit for tat it's not you know it's not the same you can't provide the same service that google provides that's that's true right
1: because so because they have their, you know, they to have say their that
0: there's yeah. no value in paying them uh, is sort of invalid because there's no way you can provide the same level of spam protection there's no way you can provide the same amount um, of uh, flexibility you know like you don't have. You know, there's no HTR, you know, Gmail app or mail app, and there's exactly, no, yeah. uh, you know, it, I've looked at, especially webmail, that was a big thing. Um, I was looking at. Because you know,
1: most people, when we see webmail, we're, we're talking squirrel mail, which is. That's an agent, really all awful there is. There's, yeah. there,
0: there's not much else out there. There's a few, there's one other one, you know, that's kind of okay, but it wasn't good enough for these people that are, this client that I was working with, and they were like, well, no, this is awful. Um, and. To me, I never visit. I don't use webmail at all. I always am using apps, and that's those are fine for me. But other people, the webmail is is the experience, and, and Google uh, offers a good webmail experience. Google is, yeah, is the experience. No, yeah. I mean, there really is not much out there, so it's it's tough. Well, mm-hmm. Apple tried
2: with Google, the Apple Maps, but you don't know how that went.
0: (laughs) Well, sure. I mean, exactly. It's hard to match with the maps, but, but even just, just with email, I mean, Apple has a really nice email service, but it's for, you know, clouds. I mean, iCloud, like there's no, there's no way. I mean, that was an interesting feature of, uh, OS 10 server is they had a mail web mail that was very, very effective. Mm -hmm. Um, that, you know, that might be an interesting use for it. Uh, so I don't know. It's, uh, Email is a very interesting because I think that is a big thing uh, that Google decided to pull out of the free market because um, because they realized that people would be willing to you
1: know to pay for for a good service because they do offer maybe a good service. There's is. no there's no question that Google does not offer a good service through Google Apps. It's just that there there was Google Apps and then there was Google Apps for business later on, right? Which was the paid service, right? Whereas Google Apps was like with, without any boarding attached to it would be your 10 users maximum. You know, fixed storage space, kind of, uh, kind of service, right? But then everyone kind of either flocked for that. You know, I know they put out a press release saying, "Oh, the experience was never qu- quite right for either the free users or the or the paid yeah. users," so we just took out the free thing and made everything the paid paid in right because with the paid users you do actually get support and all that whereas uh, with Google Apps the free which no longer exists your support was basically the knowledge based documentation that they had online right Mm -hmm. so so it was kind of like you know if you're paying for a service um, you know uh, you expect to have the level of support, you know, you know, and the and the response time and all that, right? right, associated with with your service as as opposed to your free service, which, of course, as we have, you know, figured out, is is always liable to be discontinued at any time, basically. And, so. and,
0: and I think, in some senses, I mean, unlimited users, five gigs, yeah. I don't know. It's it's so hard to put a number. I mean, because it, it's so hard to say, you know, okay, well, here's a free Gmail account. Okay, here's the same Gmail account, but at your domain, it's now five fifty dollars a year. You know, that's that's always the hardest part for me because it's something that's always been free, right? And so to show it to a client, be like, oh yeah, it's only five hundred bucks a year for your ten users. It's it's a hard sell, you know. That's that's what's so difficult. It's like, well, why don't you just use Gmail? And it's like. And and smaller organizations, they probably don't even care. They'd much be happier to use their own email, right? So. Yeah, exactly. And then,
1: you know, in a lot of cases, I deal with users who are actually like, I have my own personal email. Right. It's great that I have... Right. A corporate email address at my own domain, you know, but all I want from that is just to take the email there and forward it to my own email. Exactly, that's so what that's, a lot of people want, you so. know.
0: And so then you end up paying for the user, and they don't even use it, right? Yeah,
1: they don't even use the storage space. All I configure in there is just redirect all and delete the copy. Delete Gmail's copy is what right. is basically a setting that you you set up in in Google Apps there, right? So and there and there's not much. And in I, I I can't justify that, right? Yeah. So you know,
0: I might be going back to to the send mail thing, you can figure just straight... Uh, well, you don't even gesture. need to do that. I mean, at the end of the day, what you can do is you can say, you can set up a forward to their personal Gmail account be done with it, yeah. and send as and receive as. Done. Yeah, You know, so it's
2: it's tough. Okay, we better wrap this guy up. Okay, well, one thing quickly must be addressed. This weird phenomenon has been occurring. So, Joel got an Android tablet and can't get an Apple iPod. <laughs> what? Yeah,
0: I picked up a $70 Kobe uh, a seven-inch tablet um, from the giant tiger the giant sale, tiger which is another which is another business. thing. That they came into business like what? It was about a year and a half ago. Yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, no, they they I guess they sell these like they sell them in like you know CVS and stuff, pharmacies in the U.S. as well. Um, normally about one hundred and twenty bucks or something like this. Uh, runs Android two point three battery life is completely awful uh, and response uh, time is completely awful it's completely slow um, but it is an Android tablet and uh, it didn't come with the Google anything store because it was not a officially sanctioned like Google Android device because Android is open source you know you can make whatever you want of it but um, but you can install, you can download files that will install the Google Marketplace and stuff on there. So, you know, I install a few couple of apps, the Facebook Messenger and that sort of thing. Some of them don't appear properly and don't install. Um, but it was just interesting to get a bit of the Android experience and play around with it. I certainly like a 7-inch Android, or 7-inch seven, seven form factor.
2: I think it's a pretty nice form factor. Okay, well, Kieran, how do you enjoying your apple ipod
1: oh i finally found a, a workflow for it which apparently is is not the approved workflow for it i open <laughs> itunes i restore the device and then i drag and drop the folder of content that i actually want to put on it and it works well and then next time he restores it again and, I, and then i drag and drop the folder because <laughs> it i don't take a while see, i don't well no actually it's it's very fast i've been impressed because you know i've been using the hard drive based ones in which actually took a while to do a restore right? guess, on, yeah. on the newer ones it's 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 like 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 minutes, we're talking, right, or or less, well, right? I guess so, so, and loading the files on is is very rapid. So, I have, I've i I've been fine with that. So that's that's not the way Apple intended their product to be used, but that's the way I use it because I manage my musical content in folders. I have flat <laughs> files, I have folders, and that's it. I do not want iTunes to rename all my audio files to four-letter acronyms. Which I'm pretty sure it still
2: does. No, it doesn't. So of all the iPods out there, the model Kevin went with was in Apple iPod Nano, the 2011 little touchscreen it's square the one model. he got from Simon. He didn't go get. Well, it. yes, it's but, a part but still, distinction. Like he has many different iPods, but he, this is the one he uses because from all of them
1: because it has crossfading capability. I can't believe that was something that was absent from this product line for so long. But that this you were one does have crossfading.
0: I- iPhone does it? I don't know if it does. It, yeah. I, the iPhone does finally—you uh, can finally wake up to music, which you unveiled, yeah, after
2: uh, many know. years. The iOS six gave us that, and I use I it don't every day. that's that so long. So that's pretty great. Meanwhile, everyone whips
1: out their iPhone. <laughs>
0: <laughs> iPhone time. No, there's no crossfading
1: okay okay i didn't know that was you know such a processor intensive thing or whatever wow, to do crossfading don't but uh is, but- you know i'm just i'm just happy it exists on this product and then i i went to walmart yesterday with, with the guys with joel and uh now i was looking at the the new nano i'm like well, why is this nano bigger than the old nano what is going on <laughs> it here? plays
2: video china mart
1: yeah because it's I, multi-touch yeah. i don't know well but this was touch too who knows? I don't know. Anyway, this is a product I did not pay for. Apple it's has great, and run uh, and uh, even though it's not the, w- I'm not using the way it's intended, but it works the way I w- would like to use it. So that's good. That is all. Yeah, yeah. As long
2: as you're happy with the product, who cares? So I was gonna
1: it. buy one of those fourteen ninety nine Sylvania MP three players, and I'm pretty sure that would have done the job as well. No, but. can
2: you should get Zune.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah, we were at... A Zune. Uh, yeah, we were at uh, Ellie's Electric here in Whitecourt, and uh, they do have zooms in stock still, so... They also had uh, HD-DVDR, which was another thing, but they did not have VHS, Super VHS cassettes, which was actually the product
2: I was looking for. Yeah, but you so. guys bought three routers. The cappers. The good old capper routers, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so you So you just went and bought in three. Yeah, just...
0: Maybe we should okay. deploy those at like DLC... Be like, here, have some cappers. Just on a stick, yeah. Everywhere. Cappers on yeah. a stick. <laughs> okay.
1: Anyway, this, is the, well, this, this has been, been the Duck Podcast yeah,
0: for... Number uh,
2: 17. Yeah. December 2012. December 15th, is that what Yeah, December is? 15th. Yeah. Yeah. Local time, 11.31 p.m. PM. <laughs>
0: okay, this has been the Duck Podcast. I'm Joel Adrio. I'm Kevin Lowe. Well. niche
2: Berendor, retail expert. <laughs> and this has been the Duck Podcast. Duck. 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 Quack. i